this is mostly about my story, but my story has come to include getting other people to tell their stories. I started doing it thinking, you know, by now I have a lot of important things to tell these people, but mostly I was listening. And as I saw them tell their story, um, they kind of come alive. Well, I've been a professor of sociology at a state university here in Minnesota for 30 years. Um, and I was anticipating one more year of teaching uh, and then retiring. And my thought was during that year, I'll figure out a good retirement plan because I have no idea now what I'm going to do once I retire. Life was really good in every possible way. Um, I had an annual physical schedule and I almost skipped it, but I said, well, I'll go in and see what's going on. Uh, and they found it low white blood cell counts, but I had no symptoms. I felt perfectly fine, uh, but my doctor was very concerned. So he said, I'm going to send you to a hematologist. When I went I, on the door, it said hematology slash oncology. I thought, boy, these guys are really off the mark because if I had cancer, I would know it. Well, it ended up with a bone marrow biopsy. They detected acute myeloid leukemia. The biopsy was on a Monday. They called me on Wednesday. Thursday, I went into a hospital. Friday, I started chemotherapy. It took a while just to comprehend the, the speed with which this disease moves and, and therefore the speed with which the treatment must move. And then my, my attitude was just sort of, okay, things have certainly changed for the, for the worse in a very short period of time. But there's a sense in which being in the hospital to treat the infections after the chemo really put this illness front and center. It's like, I couldn't really do anything else other than be a good patient in the hospital. And in retrospect, I think I kind of benefited from that or I liked that. It was comforting to know they were there, whatever happened. And I think there was a part of me that there were certain things I really didn't want to know at that point. And I think my doctors were astute enough not to tell me. I mean, I didn't hear anything about survival rates until I had a consult for transplant, which was like almost three months later. Uh, I'm, I'm still wrestling with this. People ask me, were you afraid? And I don't really think that I was afraid very often or very deeply. Part of it was because it happened so quickly. I felt I was in good hands, but I could never actually wrap my head around the fact that we're all going to die someday, but I just couldn't accept the fact that I was going to die of this thing soon. It just didn't, it didn't compute. I, I couldn't even think that way. I don't think it was denial, but it was just, I, I, you know, this doesn't fit, the, this doesn't fit who I am, who I've always been, how I've gone through the various adversities that life throws at us. It's just not the way my story is going to go right now. Um, the first night after all this madness of everybody running around, you know, get, getting into this room, uh, finally things got quiet at about eight o'clock at night. And I thought, this is when I'm going to get freaked out. Uh, I'm home. I, I'm, I'm in the room. I'm alone. Time to go to sleep. Uh, and I just immediately said, okay, uh, that community education class I took a couple months ago on mindfulness could come in really handy here. So I'm going to do a body scan. And I stretched out in the bed and I started paying attention to the sensations in my toes and my feet and my legs. And before I got to my head, I fell asleep. And I use that technique almost every night. And I never, had, I never had the fears that you might think would visit you in the middle of the night. But it gets back to this notion, I don't think I really ever had um, the kind of fear that you would think would be an appropriate response to what was going on. So I was doing everything I could to not be a passive patient in a bed. I wanted to be an active person and sort of just have a, have a life or have an identity as much as you can that wasn't defined by the illness. 
And my favorite activity was, um, was walking the halls. And I would do it late morning, late afternoon before bedtime. After a week or so, the nurses said, we've been watching you and we think you're walking about five miles a day, which was hilarious because I never walked that much. Whenever a doctor wanted imaging, an x-ray or uh, an MRI or something, a person I didn't know would show up at my hospital room door with a wheelchair to take me down to imaging. And I would get out of my bed and I would say, I'm not going in the wheelchair. And we had this fight. And sometimes I couldn't win and they insisted I go down in the wheelchair and I chafed while I did it. But mostly I, I convinced them that I could walk. So they'd reel an empty wheelchair with me walking alongside. And we get there and the techs who do the imaging treated me like I was a 95-year-old feeble old man who couldn't even get up out of the wheelchair. They put me down on the slab and they're prepping me for the procedure and they're talking amongst themselves about what they're gonna do that weekend as if I'm not even in the room or it doesn't matter that I'm in the room. And that was the most alienating thing that happened to me in the hospital. But that was such a sharp contrast to the relationships I cultivated with my doctors and nurses where they knew me as a person and you know, I was being treated as an object on an assembly line. It was, it was angering you know, to be treated like that. Very rare in my overall experience there. The transplant day was, everyone who's had a transplant, I think will tell you, it's the most anticlimactic thing in the world because it's not a surgery. They just walked in with two quart-sized bags of blood. That's how much blood you can get from each umbilical cord. Hung them on an IV pole, flipped a switch, took less than an hour. Um, they really stressed the vulnerability of the patient during this immediate post-transplant period. Um, happily, um, all I really needed my caregivers for was the drive down. I had terrible fatigue. They gave me a, a pill box that had seven columns across the top, one for each day of the week, and four down the side for you could take pills at four different times. I had to take pills at so many different times, I had to turn it around, probably 25 or 30 pills. After those first 30 days, the clinic visits became less frequent. The recovery began to proceed. Six months out, they did what must have been about my eighth bone marrow biopsy. Everything was clean. And I said to my transplant oncologist, who I'd seen daily and then semi-weekly and then weekly, when should I see you again? And she shrugged her shoulders and said, eh, six months. What? Six months? She had, to, she had to remind me that it's good when the patient doesn't need to see their doctor um, and I should be happy. And so I was. At that point, six months after transplant, I think I first really accepted that I'd gotten through this thing and I was going to survive. And I tried to describe the reaction. I, the, what I came up with was serene euphoria. It was like, I didn't want to pump my fist and shout from the mountaintops, but there was this oceanic feeling of joy that just quietly washed over me. And I just wanted to nestle in and, and experience it for as long as possible. There's a real hunger for positive stories or stories with positive endings. And that kind of inspired me to find other ways to share the story I am so grateful to be here and at the quality of care I received that I'll never be able to pay off that debt, but um, I'm finding lots of ways to try. Going back and talking to current patients has been really, really powerful. And going back onto my own transplant unit and going to the nurse's station and say, who might, who might welcome a visit from someone like me? And they give me a list of names. They say, 
don't go to room 47. He's a grouch or whatever. But these people, these people, these people might like it. So I walk in, I knock on the door. I walk in, I say, my name is Steve. I'm a hospital volunteer. And they look at me with that kind of cautious, what's this really about look. And I say, but I'm also a transplant survivor. And almost to a person, their demeanor changes completely. Um, They sit up straight, their eyes begin to focus. They want to talk, almost all of them want to talk to me. And it's interesting when people are in that condition in the hospital, um, lots of the, um, the performances that we normally stage in interacting with other people as a sociologist, we study this all the time. That's just not there, you know? Uh, you feel terrible. Um, you're in a stupid hospital gown that's half coming off your shoulder because you got a port in your chest and your hair is tearing. And, you know, you have to say, stop. I got to go in the bathroom and throw up, but don't leave. I want to talk to you more. So you're kind of down to the very basic level of, uh, of humans' existence. It's, it's weirdly affirming to me to be able to do this. I'm, I'm very grateful. Uh, and I, I'm, I'm grateful that they let me be in their lives. You know, whatever they think of my coming by, that's, that's, that's their reaction. So I'm trying to be for them the person I wished I had when I was going through it. All of the things that I used to regard as cliches, they're all true. You know, the, the gratitude, um, appreciating things, that's intertwined with, with the, the whole practice of mindfulness that I really learned about just before my diagnosis. It was a happy accident. So um, taking every day as it comes, living in the moment, it really banished my anxiety somehow. I was a chronically anxious, low level, you know, manageable, <clears throat> kind of anxious person. When I landed in the hospital with cancer, I thought, boy, this, this is going to throw me over the cliff in terms of anxiety and worry. <clears throat> but cancer was almost too big to fit the anxiety machine that I developed over my life. And, and with the addition of the mindfulness, I just said, you know, live in the moment. There were a lot of lessons that generalized to other things as well. Some cancer patients talk about um, fear of an upcoming test, they call it scanxiety. You're gonna have a scan, you're anxious about it. And um, with mindfulness, I just sort of realized, <clears throat> if you get all bent out of shape for a couple of weeks because you're anticipating a test that has yet to happen and it turns out just fine, well, you wasted two weeks of your life worrying for nothing. If it turns out that it's bad, well, that proves the anxiety didn't prevent the outcome. So there's no logical argument to be made for being anxious. If there's no point in being anxious, then I'm not going to be anxious. Um, and it turns out that applies to a lot of things in life. Because um, I have a tendency to anticipate what's going to happen in the future. What's the worst case scenario? How can I plan for this and that? And I've kind of slowly taught myself, um, you know, you can't plan for that stuff. You got to have some confidence that you'll know what to do or figure out what to do if A, B, or C happens. But it's just you, you miss your life if you're too busy anticipating the future you know, or living in the past. So I don't think what I learned about mindfulness would have been as impactful if it hadn't been paired with the whole cancer odyssey. Uh, I think a lot about what I can control and what I can't. And it turns out now that I'm old and wise, I can't control most of the stuff I used to think I could control, but I've learned that now, but I can be proactive where I can. So um, if I feel that anxiety welling up, it's like, okay, what's the feeling telling me? Can I do something about this? If I can, let's do it. If I can't, just let it go. You know, life is too short to get tangled up in that. Apparently in the cancer community, there's a lot of skepticism about all of the sunny side versions of 
cancer, you know, cancer is an opportunity. It's a growth, growth experience. I was corrected by someone who said, no, it's just a growth. Um, but all these attempts to put a positive spin on cancer, it's all fine if, if the patient comes to that realization themselves. I mean, I'm profoundly changed by my cancer and I think for the better, but I wouldn't recommend having cancer as a way to change for the better. You know, that's just not how it works. So um, I've actually rewritten some of the earlier stuff I wrote on positive thinking. And, you know, my take on it is if the patient finds a way to be positive on their own terms, that's great. If it's something that's sort of imposed on them by other people endlessly, that's not great. And if they think that by being positive, they're going to guarantee their survival, that's just not accurate. But if they want to be positive because, you know, it's really a more pleasant way to pass the time and live in the moment and just make the most of your life while you're here, because, you know, we all are going to die. We just don't know when. So, um, you know, make the most of it. But don't feel you have to censor depression, um, fear, the dark side of stuff that comes along. That's got to be acknowledged. There's a fragility and a vulnerability to life that I didn't always appreciate because I'd been, you know, I'd been in good health. You know, I, at 64, my mind was like a dumb teenager thinking they could live forever. And then you get knocked down by something like this and whoa, yeah, okay. And if you appreciate the limited time you have, you don't know what the limit is, but you know it's limited in a more visceral way than just abstractly. I, I think you make more of what you have more of what you have in the time whatever you have so that you know even when the day comes you can look back and say well at least i did a few things that were worthwhile <laughs>